0: All right, Luke chapter 5 this morning, chapter 5 and 6 is where we're going to be. Going to finish off that this chapter. It's been a long time in Luke chapter 5, and we are going to knock it out today. Continuing our series, Jesus for Everyone. Jesus is continuing to challenge all kinds of things, and this morning we're going to see uh, maybe one of the biggest challenges that he lays down for uh, the Pharisees and for those uh, for those that he is teaching, uh, that we'll, we'll see in all of, all of the gospel, really. Uh, but uh, chapter 5, and, and we're going to read a couple of stories here. So we're going we're gonna to finish up a story that we looked at last week where Jesus is kind of mixing some metaphors, and we're going to read a couple of stories that will serve us well because it addresses a core problem that all humans are susceptible to, that if we let it, uh, it will it will it it will help us shape our lives. It will help us shape how we treat one another, uh, how we treat others, how we uh, live our lives, how we define the most basic elements of our faith. Uh, it's it's central to how we operate as uh, as Christians. Or we can ignore it at our own peril and set up systems and checklists and demands on people that look. And feel like Christianity, but in truth have nothing to do with our faith at all. And so you can imagine that this is a particularly dangerous thing that I'm talking about. If it can look and feel like Christianity, but not actually be Christianity, then it can cause a lot of problems. And it has wreaked havoc on the Christian faith, on really all religion, but especially the Christian faith, in our world, in fact, if you are around people that claim the, the, uh, if you 're around people that claim the name of Jesus, but it doesn 't feel very much like Jesus whenever you are with them it 's probably this lesson that they 've gotten wrong unless uh, you be too confident in yourself it 's an easy one to get to get wrong for for all of us. And so we would do well to listen to Jesus' words this morning. And I'll go one step further. If you were to write down a list of reasons that people don't come to church, if you were to do a survey, and I'm sure I didn't take the time to go look it up. I'm sure Barna has got a survey on all this. Uh, but if you were to go and look up the, the the reasons that people don't come to church, I bet one of the top three reasons, maybe the top reason given is that people would say the hypocrisy of churchgoers is one of the primary reasons that people don't go to church, that people do not come to church, that their walk doesn't match their talk, and that this single issue is enough to keep millions from darkening the door of a church. And certainly that is true. I don't, I don't want to diminish that, but I would argue that while that may be the number one reason that people list for not coming to church, it It isn't actually the number one reason. It might be the one that people can't readily identify. They don't know how to articulate it. They can't quite see it. They can't quite put their finger on it. Uh, But it's 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 one of the things that what Jesus addresses this morning is actually far more prevalent in churches and far more destructive to the potential faith of careful observers. They just don't know how to articulate it. They don't know how to see it. They don't know what has actually gone wrong. Because it looks like everything is right, even though it has gone very, very wrong. I think this is more pervasive than the problem of hypocrisy. So Luke chapter 5, verse 33. Read this passage last week, this, this paragraph last week. I'm going to read it again, but I'm going to pick up on a different part than what we looked at last week. And they said to him, the disciples of John fast often and offer prayers, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees. But yours eat and drink. And Jesus said to them, can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. And he also told them a parable. So this is the part we'll pick up on, this story that relates to this. No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new, and the piece from the new will not match the old. And no one puts on... So we looked at this passage last week where Jesus kind of mixes these metaphors. I I imagine the disciples are probably a little bit confused trying to figure out exactly what he is talking about. We looked at the feasting last week, but now we're going to look at this idea about wineskins and garments and figure out what he's trying to teach in these two parables about how we are to live. And what we're going to see is that Luke helps us out here, because what Luke is going to do is he's going to follow up this parable about uh, this, these, uh, the, the garments and the wineskins with two stories that are direct applications of that of that teaching. So it's not necessarily that Jesus made this teaching and immediately following these next stories happen. This is Luke saying, here's the story Jesus told, here's the parable Jesus told, now here's that parable in action. And so that's what we're going to to see, because in in, in my opinion, chapter five and chapter six, it's a terrible chapter break right there, because I think they flow one into the other. I don't think that we should go from five to six. I think that the end of five and the beginning of six are really one teaching unit that Luke gives us. Uh, So let's see what the parable is teaching, and then we're going to see how this works in Jesus's Ministry. So he uses these two metaphors that communicate essentially the same reality. He talks about the wineskins and the garments. And in both metaphors, what Jesus is showing is how something old and something new don't really live together very well. They don't work. That whenever you combine the two, one will affect the other in a way that makes them both useless. What makes it so hard is that it looks like it should work at first. When you initially apply the principle that Jesus is talking about here, when you put the new patch on the old garment or when you put the, the new wine in the old wineskin, at first it looks like a good remedy for the problem at hand. But that's the key. It looks good, but it actually isn't. What, it, what looks good is, it, is exactly the wrong thing to solve the problem. It's what's unseen that makes the proposed solution exactly wrong for What is needed even though it looks like the right thing externally it would appear that the patch would fix the problem that something would would would, would hold the wine and that this this wineskin would be exactly what is needed but what happens is when you apply the solution things don't get better they get worse the old and new fabrics don't work well together. They give at different rates. One is soft and pliable, the other is rigid and unbending. The wineskins that are new, they are soft and pliable. Uh, they work well for the new wine that has yet to fully ferment, but as the fermi- uh, fermentation happens, those wineskins would begin to swell. So you can see a picture here. This is what a wineskin would look like. And this one is one of the newer ones. So you can tell that that leather is is pretty soft. It's pretty supple. And so if you put wine in there, what's going to happen is it's going to ferment. It's going to begin to expand. The gases are going to begin to expand. A new wineskin would have leather that was soft enough that would allow it to grow with the fermentation. So it's the right thing. An old wineskin would look more like, like like an old piece of leather, like beef jerky almost, right? So it looked like an old piece of leather. And so if you put that uh, wineskin in, or you put that wine in there, it's not soft anymore. It's very, it's very rigid. It's very hard. And so what would happen is that, is that the, as the fermentation process takes place, then the wineskin would begin to split and to burst. I observed this process just a couple of weeks ago. Not with wine, but with salsa. I didn't know that salsa could ferment. I know this now. So I bought some some salsa, big old tub of it from from Sam's. Right, big old thing of it uh, from Sam's. It's in a plastic bottle, big old big old thing. I bought it, and somehow it didn't make it into the fridge, which is where it's supposed to go. It made it into the cabinet. Uh, and sat in the cabinet for two or three weeks. I'm not exactly sure how long it was in there, uh, but I went and got some chips and said, all right, I'm ready for my chips and salsa. Couldn't find the salsa, start looking around, find it in the cabinet, and I thought, well, that's not ideal. I would rather have cold salsa than warm salsa, but this is fine. Uh, it will work. And so I grabbed it, and I, and I pulled it out, but since it was sealed, it, it hadn't spoiled or anything, but I noticed there was kind of a bulge around the middle of this Uh, of this thing. So there's a little bulge there, but I thought, well, it must have gotten dropped and misshapen or something like that. I really wasn't paying much of attention. I was focused on my chips. I wanted my chips so I could sit down and watch my baseball game and just enjoy life. That's what I was focused on, right? And so I unscrew the top and it's got the vacuum seal on the top, right? So I unscrew the top and I I turn it to, to pull the vacuum seal. And as I pull that vacuum seal back, a hand grenade went off, like, scared me to death. It was loud, and it went everywhere. Now, fortunately, I was peeling it this way, so I was spared the the salsa and wearing the salsa, but my cabinets, my walls, my countertop, not spared. Uh, It was sprayed everywhere. And I just kind of stood there like, what just happened here? Why did a bomb just go off? Whenever I opened this uh, this salsa, I don't understand how this this happened. I mean, it was everywhere. It smelled terrible. I don't know how y'all drink that kombucha stuff. I don't know how y'all do that. That stuff, this stunk. It was it was it did not smell good. Um, but the pressure had built up and the salsa had, had, had fermented, and the, the gases that gave off built the pressure inside the plastic. And then, whenever I pulled the lid off this semi pliable plastic, uh, boom is what happened. Well, this is the same thing that happens in the fermentation process with, with wine, uh, it's not grape juice. In case you've been told that your whole life, it's actually wine. There's alcohol there. Uh, the newer wineskins would be pliable, allow those gases to build and build and build, and they would just stretch. Unlike my, my little plastic jar of salsa that reaches its limits, the wineskins would stretch. That's how it would work. But the older ones that had been stretched out to their max and had begun to dry out, they wouldn't allow the fermentation and growth to happen. They would burst, and you'd have no wine For anyone. They would be no good for anybody. The seeming obvious solution was the wineskin and the patch. It makes sense to put the patch on the garment that has torn. It makes sense to use the wineskin for the wine. But those would turn out to be disasters because of what the mixture of the old and the new would create. So that's the parable. That's what Jesus is trying to communicate. That's what he is teaching. Now, Luke gives us the application of the parable. What does the teaching look like in real life? So, before we get there, get there just as an aside, Jesus didn't come teaching some highbrow academic philosophy. Right? His teaching was powerful, but part of the reason his teaching was so powerful is because it had real-world implications. He wasn't just providing some seminary debate. He wasn't providing some academic philosophy to talk about. He was saying, this is how godliness looks like in real life, in the day-to-day muck of the world. And it was vital teaching to know how to live and to function as a God-worshipper. So Jesus came and he gives this very practical teaching. And then this is how it plays out. Luke chapter 6, verse 1. On a Sabbath, that's not just a note, that's an important note. On a Sabbath, while he was going through the grain fields, his disciples plucked and ate some heads of grain, rubbing them in their hands. But some of the Pharisees said, why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? And Jesus answered them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry, and he he and those who were with him, how they entered the house of God and took and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priests to eat, and also gave it to those with him? And he said to them, The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. So that is story one. So the second story is going to be another miracle. So he gives us a miracle, and he gives us a simple lunch break. Both are important for one particular reason. They were breaking long-established pharisaical rules. So let's quickly evaluate the rules that are there. In story one, Jesus and his disciples were walking through a field plucked some heads of grain as they were walking by, just grabbed them with their hands, pulled the heads of grain off, rubbed them together in their hands, and they would eat them. Just kind of a quick snack along the way. They didn't have the chips that I had to go with my salsa that they could eat. They needed to grab something along the way. So they grabbed this, rubbed it together, and they would eat it. The Pharisees did not like this. Um, They had moved on from the friend or foe conversation of a couple of weeks ago at this point. He was full on foe, and they were trying to figure out how to stop Jesus at this point. The aim is to catch Jesus in a compromising situation, at least an ethically ambiguous situation, so that they could be ready to leap and catch him in in kind of a a trap, and a bit of a catch-22. So Jesus knows they're looking for their moment. And here's the thing, Jesus isn't ducking any of it. Jesus says, all right, you want to challenge me, let's go. And so one thing that becomes clear in Luke's gospel, Jesus is not afraid of confrontation. He welcomes it. He welcomes it each time as a teaching opportunity for his followers. So his disciples are busted eating this, uh, this grain. And here's the thing, the, the disciples say, what you're doing is unlawful. You can't do this. And so what they, were, what they were accusing the disciples of doing is breaking the Sabbath by plucking the heads of grain, rubbing it together, and eating it. So they were accusing them of, of breaking the Sabbath. And they're just saying, hey, this is unlawful as though it's fact. But it's very questionable, if not altogether wrong, that it's unlawful. If you actually go back and read the laws in Leviticus that they are trying to refer to At best, it's a stretch to get to their place where they say that it's unlawful. But what they were saying is that they were breaking the Sabbath because what they were doing, it was okay to eat on the Sabbath, but you're not allowed to prepare a meal on the Sabbath. So what they were saying is as they walked by and plucked the heads of grain, that was work, you can't do that on the Sabbath, and then as they rubbed it together in their hands to break off the kernel on the outside to be able to eat it, what they were saying is that is preparing a meal and that that is work. So this is the equivalent of, if you're a baseball player and you're eating sunflower seeds, right? Like you could eat the sunflower seeds whole, but you can't break them open to get the seed out. This is basically what they're saying, because if you break open the sunflower seed to, to get the seed out, that's work. And you can't do work on the Sabbath because that is preparing a meal. On its surface, we can all look at that and say, that's ridiculous. That is ridiculous to say that this is the same thing as preparing a meal. We can see how this works. But you see, what had happened is the, relig- the, the Pharisees had done what all good religious people do. And I say this sincerely. I'm not saying this mockingly. I'm saying this sincerely. They did what all good religious people do. They made a list of rules. The list of rules started with the law, but would, would very quickly go well beyond the law. It was rules to make sure that you didn't break the rules that were made about breaking the rules that were made about breaking the law. So it was like layer on top of layer on top of, <clears throat> on, on top of layer. And so they, they put all of this stuff out there and they were trying to make sure they would, they would put rules in place to make sure that you didn't break the rules that really were the rules that mattered. The problem was the rules that they put in place actually became more important than the rules that they were trying to protect in the first place. And so what is happening here is that that what they are accusing the disciples of here, what they are accusing Jesus of here, is likely not even a real problem. It's, It's likely not even breaking the law. But what I think is interesting is Jesus basically agrees to humor them. Jesus never says, What are you talking about? This is not against the law. This is what the law says. And here's what I am doing. The two are not the same thing. Leave me alone. I'm following the law as it's written in Leviticus. He never says that. He humors them. Because the problem Jesus wants to address is not whether or not they get their list of rules right. He wants to address what drove their list of rules in the first place. Less about what's on the list and more about how those rules made it to the list in the first place. So Jesus gives a lesson from the life of David. Honestly, it's a pretty obscure story and one that's left pretty ambiguous in its original context in First Samuel. Jesus essentially quotes a story where David persuaded a priest to hand out bread that was consecrated and left on the altar and not technically to be for anyone but the priest and the priesthood. And David got the priest to take it and then pass it out to his men who were very, very hungry, to these soldiers that were there. And so at best, what happens in David's context in 1 Samuel is that it was questionable whether or not it was against the law or not. Technically, the priest is the one that took it, but then the priest handed it out to the soldiers. It was really kind of pushing the law, if not outright violating the law. But David, as king, says, this is what I need you to do, priest. I need you to do this in order to feed my men who are very, very hungry. And So Jesus uses this old story to show how important it was that we aren't so married to a list of rules that we forget why the rules were put in place to begin with. He wants us to see that what's external is far less important than what is internal. And for so many Christians, this is exactly where we have gotten things wrong. This is exactly where things have gotten flipped on their head. For so many, the reason that, that, that they say they won't go to church is because the church is full of hypocrites. People whose lives and ethics don't match the faith they proclaim. The good Christian's response, what do we do? What, what, what do we say? For those that are legit trying to be good, again, I'm, I'm not mocking, this is legit. They work extra hard to make sure that they, they walk what they talk. And this is what we're told from a young age, right? To be a good, faithful Christian means that you back up your, your talk with your walk. You do what you say you will do. Don't be that hypocrite that is the reason somebody doesn't come to church. That is a good thing. That is a win whenever we back up the way that we live with the way that we talk. The problem is what we've been told is that that is the essence of our faith, and it is not. It is an important part of our faith, but it is not the essence of our faith. We make the external the test of faith. God never does that. We make the external the test of faith. And this is what we do with our kids. This is what we we do with, with, with society. We want our kids to be well behaved and to look the part. This is what we do with ourselves. We want ourselves to be able to walk into church with our head held high because we did what we were supposed to do this week. This is what we do with the rest of society. We we want laws to enforce people to adhere to our ethic. And we freak out when non-Christians do non-Christian things. We want and we crave the external check marks of our faith. We demand them of others and we cling to them as though they have life for us ourselves. And this is exactly what got the Pharisees in trouble. It's exactly what Jesus is pushing on here. They clung to the outward appearance of rule followers and they demanded the same of others. And Jesus says, look at David. Look at what he did. As king, he did something that was morally questionable in eating the bread of presence. You'd blast him for that if he were here today. But he did it out of mercy for his soldiers who were starving. And David did this because he was a king and he ordered the priest to do it. He had the authority to say, you will do this for my soldiers. And then Jesus says, I am Lord of the Sabbath. In effect, he says this, David was the king. He used his authority to show mercy by breaking a questionable rule. I am Jesus, and I too wield authority like a king, and I will use that authority to show mercy and allow my disciples to eat if I want to. I too will break these questionable rules that you have. I will, I will not bow down to your insistence on my external compliance, because the external compliance is not the most important thing here. Which is where the next story comes into play, and will further explain this. Jesus will move from his refusal to check off their boxes of external rules, and now he will get to the heart of what really matters. So Luke chapter 6, verse 5, uh, verse 5 or 6 maybe. On another Sabbath, he entered the synagogues and was teaching, and a man was there whose right hand was withered. And the scribes and the Pharisees watched him to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath so that they might find a reason to accuse him. But he knew their thoughts, and he said to the man with the withered hand, Come and stand here. And he rose and stood there. And Jesus said to them, I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to destroy it? And after looking around, them, after looking around at, at, at them all, he said, to them, he said to him, stretch out your hand. And he did so, and his hand was restored, but they were filled with fury and disgust with one another what they might do to Jesus. Man, that verse 11 just kind of strikes you, right? Like this tells you where the Pharisees are at. The man has his hand healed as Jesus speaks to his hand, and his hand is miraculously healed, and the Pharisees don't say, that's amazing, look at what you've done, Jesus, praise God. That's not their response at all. Their response is, filled with fury can you imagine seeing someone healed of a condition they've had their whole life and you're mad about it you're angry about it can you imagine if somebody came up here and they 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 were they were healed of something they had had their whole life and your response is not praise god that's amazing your response is how dare you do something like that How dare you do something like that? And you're full of anger, but that's how far they had gone morally, how far they had fallen morally. So Jesus goes looking for another fight in order to make a point to his disciples and to the Pharisees. Jesus is up teaching It'd be the equivalent of what I'm doing up here, up teaching, and he happens to notice a guy. Maybe he's sitting there in the front row. Maybe he's, he's a little bit to the back or something. He happens to notice a guy who, who's got a hand that is, that is shriveled, that is withered. And in the middle of his sermon, he just stops and he says, hey, you, you there with a the hand, come up here. I want to have a word with you. So the guy comes up there, and he calls the man up, and then he asks the Pharisees this question But when he asked the Pharisees this question, Jesus is doing what the Pharisees were trying to do to him. They were trying to put him in this this morally ambiguous situation that they could call him out for no matter what he did, and he flips the script on them, which he does all the time to them, where they're trying to trap him, and instead he asks them a question that puts them in a morally ambiguous situation, or at least in a compromising position. He says, what are you guys going to do? Here's what the external says, but this is what I am saying. He asks them, you're getting all bent out of shape about my disciples eating some grain. But you tell me just how far do these rules go? Can I do any good on this day? How much good? Can I heal a man with a withered hand? Can I heal someone at all? Can I save a life? Or should I just let them die? Where do your rules stop, Pharisees? He proceeds to heal the man just by asking the man to stretch out his hand. I'm going to speculate here. But this is one of the few miracles that Jesus does without touching the person. He simply speaks to him. And he says, stick out your hand, and then his hand is healed. Now, this may be an oversight by Luke. Maybe Luke didn't think that detail was important. Maybe Jesus reached out and took his hand. It's very possible. But I think it's, it, it, it's, it's just as likely that Jesus didn't reach out and touch him because he wanted to make sure that the Pharisees didn't have any accusation against him that he did work that day. And so 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 his, his response to just say, stick out your hand, is basically like, am I allowed to talk on this day? Okay, okay, I can't rub my hands together to prepare a meal. If, if I reach out and touch this guy, you may say that's work. Can I just speak, Pharisees? How far do the rules go, Pharisees? And Jesus is teaching them teaching them that, that he works in a way that they cannot put in a box. And he says that, that, that you can't just say this is how the rules work. He dares them to throw him out of the synagogue. He he heals them. and He says, come at me with your rules. And they are paralyzed by indecision. Jesus knew what was important. It's not the haggling and the arguing about whether a man's hand should have been healed. That's not the big problem. What's important is, here is not whether or not the man should have been healed. The more important thing is that everybody high-fives the guy with his good hand as he walks out the door. That's what you celebrate. That's the important thing. But they're so worried about whether he broke the rules or not, the guy walks out and nobody even talks to him. There's no high-fiving this guy because they don't care about the guy. They care about the rules. Jesus' priority Is the guy that now has a good hand. The Pharisee's priority is the rules. Jesus is here to party, not mess around with the rules. He says, stop with your silly religious games that you've been playing, trying to make yourself look good. Trying to pretend that your sin isn't there. Stop with all of that stuff and ask yourself, do you think maybe you've lost the plot somewhere, Pharisees? Do you think maybe somewhere along the line you've just gone in the wrong direction here? Do you think maybe you're not really following what it is that God had intended when he gave you these laws in the first place? And we're going to talk about the Sabbath a lot as we go throughout the book of Luke. So I'm not even, I'm not even going to dive into what is allowed, what should we be doing, all that kind of stuff. We'll get there and talk about that at some point. Um, but the, the question really is, hey, have you guys just completely forgotten the whole reason that we're doing any of this at all, or the, the reason that God gave you the law? I'm curious. How many of you guys have ever heard the phrase "jump the shark"? Sh- show of hands. All right, so that's a handful of you. So I don't know if you know where this phrase comes from. And I don't how many how many people do we do we have in here that are big Happy Days fans? Anybody? All right, so like one or two of you, right? I can tell you right now, I have never seen an episode of the Happy Days. But I know who the Fonz is, right? Um, and so the, the phrase, jump the shark, comes from, uh, comes from an old TV show. It comes from, from Happy Days. And th- so there, there's a picture here. So this is the Fonz in his leather jacket uh, skiing, and and the the plot of this this episode is that he's doing like a trick where he's jumping over uh, a, a shark or a cage of sharks that are that are below him when he's got the the skis on, um, so that's the it's literally he's he's jumping the shark, and uh, I'm gonna guess most of y'all didn't watch Happy Days based on your responses there, uh, but. But what people who were fans of Happy Days saw whenever they were watching that episode was, their basically, basic response to this moment right here was, what are we doing here? What, what are we doing here? What is the point in this? And so the, the phrase, jump the shark, became synonymous with, 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 with a couple of, of, of different things, right? It came synonymous with a cheap stunt that the writers put in there to try and draw an audience because they've run out of ideas. That's basically what it means, and so it becomes associated with uh, with 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 like 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 kitschy kind of kind of like this is this is dumb stuff. It becomes associated with with mediocrity, and and typically, if something jumps the shark, what that means is. What made something so good in the first place is now gone and we're trying whatever we can to just keep this thing going. And what typically follows then is very mediocre to terrible stuff that follows. And so if you say a show has jumped the shark, what you mean is this show used to be good but now it's just gotten a little silly. It's gotten a little bit ridiculous. This is not, this is not what we're, we're doing. In fact, this might be a little bit embarrassing. I'm sorry that those actors even have to do that. Jesus is saying to the Pharisees, Y'all have jumped the shark here, guys. Y'all y'all have left the whole reason that this was good. And now what you're doing is embarrassing for yourself. You completely left what was good about all of this in the past. You've completely lost the plot. The rules about the Sabbath are are, are are so far from what the Sabbath was intended that you've completely lost the whole meaning of the Sabbath. The Pharisees didn't care, though. The Pharisees just wanted to look good. They just wanted to be super righteous. But in so doing, they had created a religion that was so far from the one that God had given Moses in the law that it was barely recognizable anymore. And Jesus was here to set all this straight. But he wasn't going to pour new wine into an old wineskin. He wasn't just going to do the same thing. These old rules weren't going to work anymore because Jesus isn't about the rules. He's about our hearts, our devotion, our worship, which is what the law was about. He's not about some outward display of of. of Uh, of devotion, but an inward posture of our hearts. Do we desire a neat and tidy list of rules? Or do we desire the messiness of a life rooted in mercy and love? That's really the question that he puts before them. And the Pharisees unequivocally say, give me my rules. And Jesus says... You need mercy and you need love jesus came with new wine skins for the new wine jesus changed everything he didn't just correct a few teachings this is a popular thing that's out there is that jesus was a rabbi that came to call out the pharisees and just kind of correct where they had begun to go askew that's not what jesus did He didn't just come to kind of make some minor corrections. He knew that if you did that, and if you tried to put what he was going to teach into the system the Pharisees had created, it would all fall apart. Their rules could not hold the good news of the gospel. Rules can never hold the good news of the gospel. And I wonder how many of us have built our lives around the rules. How many of us have focused on external displays of our faith and, been con- and convinced ourselves that God loves us because we're good at being good? I wonder how many of us have shut down the conviction of the Holy Spirit because we've said, look, I'm being good. You can't be convicting me. I'm following the rules. And I wonder how many of us have replaced the fruit of the Spirit with the works of our hands and thought God would like that better. The gospel is so much bigger than that. The, the Pharisees couldn't see it because they were married to it. They would have to walk away from everything they've ever known. They would have to walk away from a system that they had created that was designed to make them look good. But the gospel is so much bigger. So is hypocrisy a a problem in the church? Of course it is. For sure it is. Is that something we've got to be aware of? Absolutely. Should we walk the walk? For sure, absolutely walk the walk. But I'm convinced there are far more people that have had their faith sidelined and wrecked, not just because the walk didn't match the talk, but because the heart didn't match the walk. Because people were good at enforcing rules, but really bad at, being, uh, at living out the fruit of the Spirit. They could show up on Sundays, they could give the offering, they could stand up here and preach a sermon, they could lead a Bible study, they could parent their children, they could do all the things that we say you need to do to be a good Christian, but they did not have love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, self-control. They had none of that stuff. Because you don't have to, to be a Christian in our world that we've built. You didn't have to to be a Pharisee, and you don't have to to be a, a Christian today. But the fruit of the Spirit is, is, is how you know your faith is working. Not whether you showed up here this morning. Not whether you, you did the good deed, whatever that was. The works of our hands are so insufficient for the gospel. But the fruit of the Spirit is sufficient because we are not the ones that produce it. It is the Spirit. And what the Spirit produces is good and it is life-giving and it is true. And so Jesus says, I am Lord of the Sabbath. And what he's saying there, make no mistake, people like to say Jesus never said, I am God. When he stands in front of a Jew and he says, I'm the Lord of the Sabbath, he's saying, I have the authority of God because I am God. And here's how I tell you the Sabbath is supposed to work. And let me tell you how the Sabbath is supposed to work. High five this dude on the way out because I just healed his hand. That's how the Sabbath is supposed to work. Because that's good news. So Jesus is not, he's not afraid to make his enemies. And he's telling the Pharisees, man, your life that you've built, your rules that you've built, this, this system you've constructed, it's so insufficient for the new wine that I am bringing. And it's going it's to burst everywhere if you try to put it in there. And it'll be no good for anyone. So you can't, just, you can't just take a little bit of my teaching and apply it. And hey, this applies to us too. Because what we like to do is, we like, I say this all the time, we like to say, Jesus, here's my life. Will you just baptize it a little bit? Will you sprinkle some Jesus dust on it so that I can say that this is good? I prayed about it. I prayed that it was God's will that I have this thing. So this must be a good thing. And we like to say, Jesus, will you just will you just bless this thing that I've got here? And Jesus is saying, this is not you can't just sprinkle a little bit of me on top and say it's Christian. That's not how it works. It's a whole new thing. Which is why Paul says that when we become a Christian, we are a new creation. This is not the spirit inhabiting the old We are a new creation in Christ because that's the only way that the gospel will fully take root in us. Not if something is placed in something old, but if we become something new. And so my question for you is, do you love your list of rules? Are you good at being good? Man, I'm glad you're a rule follower. I'd rather you be a rule follower than not. But the question is, that, that Jesus gets to is, are the rules that you're following just because that's the system you're supposed to follow, because it makes you look good when you show up at church, because it makes you feel good and kind of assuades your conscience because you can shut the Holy Spirit up because you can say, I did my thing. Yeah. My challenge to you this morning is to hear the voice of the Spirit that says, this is the way, walk in it. And it's not just about external compliance, but it's about the position of our hearts. I'm convinced more people do not come to our churches because the position of our hearts is so far removed from from the gospel. Let's pray. Father, this morning, it is my personal confession that I love my list of rules. It is so tidy. It is so obvious. It is so clear what I am supposed to do. Father, break my heart of my love for my rules. Father, break my heart of my, my love for things that are so, so clear-cut and so, so just there that I can follow Father, help me to follow you. Bring me back to the truth and to the, the beauty of the law that you gave us and to the beauty of Christ and the gospel. Father, I pray for each of us in here that as the Spirit speaks and convicts this morning that you would not, that, he, that, that he would not withdraw from us, but that he would press into us And that we would know where repentance is necessary it's in christ's name we pray amen